Hey everybody, thank you so much for turning up early in the morning, um, probably before you go off to work. So as Susie said, I'll be talking to you today about my research looking at physical activity following traumatic brain injury. Just before I get started, I wanted to do just a really quick shout out to for a scholarship for physios in case there are any in the room. So this is just a travel scholarship that I was lucky enough to be awarded this year. And I wanted to just put awareness out there. Um, it's a scholarship worth up to $10,000. It's for physios. They prefer people who are sort of um, recent graduates in, as in five to 10 years post-graduation or under 35 years, but they're a bit flexible with that. And the idea of it is for people to travel overseas for postgraduate study or to gain professional experience. So I was able to, with that and an Epworth scholarship, go and do a vestibular course and then travel around to lots of vestibular centres over there and see how they were doing everything. So it's an amazing scholarship and they're actually taking applications at the moment. Uh, closes 10th of November. So the thing you need to have for your organisation is what's a, called a DGR status, so it's deductible gift recipient so your finance department would know whether you've got that or not and uh, I think there are people from Monash and Alfred so the public hospitals I think do have that as well as the not-for-profit so I've got um, some more information about it if anyone wants to know after the lecture just wanted to give them a shout out because they're awesome all right so getting into what we're doing so first of all, I'll give a little bit of background information about physical activity and obviously how important it is. And then I will discuss my study that I did for my research, which was looking at physical activity when people have had a traumatic brain injury and when they first go home from hospital after their inpatient rehabilitation. After that, I'll go through my literature review that was part of um, my research do some discussion about what's come up and some practical tips and take home messages. So to firstly define what is physical activity, it's any bodily movement produced by skeletal muscles that requires energy expenditure. So waving my arm, doing anything at all, that's physical activity. And just as a little example of some beautiful physical activity, <laughs> According to YouTube, this lady's 97, so I really hope that I can dance like this when I'm 97. Might do a bit more Pilates though to try and keep my posture a bit more upright. Um, so when you're looking at classifying physical activity, there are four dimensions of it. So the first one is frequency, how often are you doing it? Duration, how long are you being physically active for or doing that particular activity? The intensity, so how much effort is going into it uh, physiologically on a cellular basis and also the type of activity. So it could be dancing, could be running, walking, could be just uh, cycling, anything at all. She really gets into it there, it's great. <laughs> so it's really important to differentiate between exercise and physical activity. So exercise is a type of physical activity where planned, structured and repetitive bodily movements are performed to improve or maintain one or more components of physical fitness. So something like going for a run, it's a repetitive activity, you're trying to improve your muscle strength, your cardiovascular fitness, going to the gym, lifting weights, so you're repeating that activity to improve the strength. 
So ex physical activity is a larger umbrella and exercise comes underneath that umbrella as one component of physical activity. So when you're looking at physical activity throughout the day, you will have whatever exercise you've done, but then you've also got all of the other incidental activity. So literally rolling over in bed, standing up, that's a form of incidental activity. Walking to the bathroom, walking into the kitchen to go and get your breakfast. And when you think about throughout the day, maybe you're awake for say 15 hours or so, uh, you might go to the gym for 30 minutes or an hour, or you might go for a walk specifically doing exercise for 30 minutes or an hour. So what are you doing for the other 14 or 15 hours of your waking day? So that's quite a long time and the incidental activity is really important because that's what you're actually spending most of your day doing. And in terms of measurement of physical activity, so just the term physical activity levels is the quantification of all types of physical activity completed within a given time period. So when you're looking at measuring it. So in terms of the current recommendations for the general population, the Australian Physical Activity and Sedentary Behaviour Guidelines that were published last year, they outline the recommendations that people should be doing 30 minutes, five days per week of moderate intensity exercise. So moderate intensity is where you can still carry on a conversation whilst you're doing the the exercise so walking or gardening or things like that where you're not getting up too much huff and puff or alternatively you could be doing 60 to 75 minutes per week over three days so 10 15 minutes per day of vigorous intensity exercise so uh, that is where you are huffing and puffing and really getting your heart rate up so these are the current recommendations but as you'll note, they're really specific to exercise. And if you're looking at the vigorous intensity exercise, okay, you might go for a run for 10 minutes. So what's happening the rest of the day? What are you doing? How are you spending your time? Is your body moving around or not? And as you'll see, it's quite important. So thinking about the rest of the day, if people aren't having scheduled exercise, but they're wanting to get an idea of well, how active am I? An alternative way of looking at recommendations can be steps per day. So I know that Fitbits and other monitoring devices are becoming a lot more popular nowadays so that people can actually monitor what they're doing and set goals for themselves. So in the literature, they lay out what the recommendations are for steps per day, and it's greater than 10,000 steps per day is a classification of being active. If you're doing 7,500 to about 10,000, you're somewhat active. 5,000 to 7.5, low active. And less than 5,000 is a sedentary classification. Has anyone actually used a Fitbit or anything to monitor themselves? And have you some days been a bit shocked at what <laughs> you think, oh, I didn't do that badly, and you're looking, 2,000 steps and it's 8 p.m. <laughs> Quick, I need to go for a walk. So when I've just played around with it, it's normally if I do about a 30 or 45 minute walk, then that will normally get me up to the 10,000 steps with if, even if I've been mostly sitting at my desk and not doing too much the rest of the day. So that does sort of align with the um, 
Australian Physical Activity Guidelines, but it's a really nice way to give you some feedback if you're doing the steps per day. So in terms of what are we doing the rest of the day, this um, catchphrase is sitting the new smoking. I don't know if people have come across it before. It's related to some research done by David Dunstan, an Australian researcher. He started publishing uh, in the last few years about looking at, well, uh, what's happening to people who are sitting down all day long? And it turns out it's not good for you at all. So, impact of prolonged sitting. What he found was that people who are sitting for say, eight to 10 hours a day, uh, imagine a desk job where you're mostly sitting writing reports, they have increased cardiometabolic risk biomarkers, increased type two diabetes, obesity, cancer, and premature mortality. So, <laughs> it makes you think maybe sitting is as bad as smoking. <laughs> and the thing that I found really interesting is that physiologically, they found that if you're sitting for 10 hours and not moving around at all, on a cellular level, what's going on is it's so bad in terms of you're not breaking down your glucose or nothing's moving, you're not oxygenating your cells, your blood flow is not moving as well, that if you go to the gym in the morning, do 30 minutes of exercise and then you sit for 10 hours, you've actually reversed with the sitting, you've reversed all of the good work that you've done at the gym. I thought, geez, that really sucks. <laughs> like, you wanna to go to the gym and get something from it. Obviously, you're better off than had you not gone to the gym and you've sat all day long. But the idea is that you need to be moving throughout the day as well as going to the gym. It's not just enough to go to the gym and then sit. So they did another study where they looked at, well, what happens if we get people to stand up and walk around for two minutes every 20 minutes in this situation where they're sitting for long periods? And they found with that that people had uh, improved glucose breakdown in their cells. So that's really good because if your glucose isn't breaking down, that's a sign of glucose intolerance, which is a <coughs> precursor to type 2 diabetes and a lot of the cancers, etc. So the message being you need to get up and move around. And the other thing about sitting all the time, anyone who's a physio would be really aware of all of the muscle imbalances that you get. So if you imagine our clients who are predominantly wheelchair bound, if they're sitting like this, they're gonna get short hip flexors, short hamstrings. Even people who are sitting at a desk all day, they're often at a computer, poking their head forward, arms forward, typing. And you get so many uh, painful postures associated with that. And for our clients who are sitting in a wheelchair longer, when they then go up, stand up to try and move around, it's so much harder for them to do because of the muscle imbalances. So at this point in time, the research isn't at a stage where they can recommend, okay, every one hour you need to get up and move for one minute or anything like that. They don't know specifically what the ideals are, but the main message is that you need to get up and move around throughout the day. So drink lots of water and then you'll need to go to the toilet. So you'll just effectively be getting up and moving around anyway. And generally the implications of being inactive, uh, increased risk of cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes, some cancers, hypertension, high cholesterol, obesity, abnormal glucose tolerance, 
thrombosis, osteoporosis, mental health problems, muscle wasting and premature mortality. <laughs> Do you feel like standing up and moving around reading that? <laughs> it's a pretty, um, pretty big list, I think. And looking specifically at people who have had a traumatic brain injury, obviously they have the increased risk of disease that I've just gone through, all of those things, because they're people the same as everyone else. And then specifically, individuals who've had a traumatic brain injury and who are also inactive, they're the group who have the highest rates of circulatory disease and morbidity and mortality within the TBI population. As well as all of those things, being inactive leads to secondary conditions that cause a deterioration in physical functioning, long-term health and quality of life. So if they're not moving around, you're not mo using your muscles, you get muscle wasting, weakness, so then it's harder to stand up. It takes a lot more effort. Cardiovascularly, you lose your cardiovascular fitness, your stamina, so then it's harder to move around. So if someone's deconditioned and it's harder for them to perform their physical function, then it makes sense that it's going to affect their quality of life and their long-term health. And these factors together all result in a higher utilisation of healthcare resources. And the other thing that's important to remember is that quite a high percentage of the TBI population incur their injury when they're quite young. So then they're living, say, they have their injury when they're 20, they might be living uh, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years longer with the implications of their traumatic brain injury, but also any implications from being inactive. So it's really important that these people are active right from when they have their injury and try and set up that routine of being active throughout their life to maintain the movement and ability that they do have and can have. So the benefits of being physically active, well, avoiding all of the negative outcomes of being inactive, I think that that's probably a good list straight away. In terms of individuals who've had a traumatic brain injury, being more physically active is associated with lower levels of depression, a better quality of life, better general and mental health, fewer reported symptoms, and a higher self-efficacy. So it's really beneficial being active. So does anyone think that having a traumatic brain injury might make it harder to be physically active? Put your hand up if you think it would. Yeah, so majority of people think intuitively that it is going to. So obviously everyone in the room knows that when you've had a traumatic brain injury, there are lots of impairments that come along with it and they're varied depending on the individual. They can be physical, cognitive and emotional impairments and all of these things have numerous functional, functional and social consequences. So they affect return to work, return to driving, return to leisure pursuits, social interactions, family, friends, they affect everything. So you would think that that would affect ability to be physically active as well. And if you look specifically at physical mobility impairments, there's a whole list of problems that people can experience following a traumatic brain injury. So muscle tone issues, spasticity, balance, vestibular system problems, muscle power generation, motor skill fatigue, pain, sensation, and range of movement problems. So all of those things 
people might have one or a multitude of those factors and they can all influence how well someone can move around. So I'm about to go into my study, but what I want everyone to do is stand up and <laughs> take 100 steps right now and you can watch the little lady, oops, little lady dance again, just for amusement. <laughs> Oh, squats, I like it, <laughs> bearing it up, <laughs> exactly. I'm not counting, everyone needs to count themselves. <laughs> Does anyone feel like pulling out a few dance moves? <laughs> so you, you can't have a physio lecture with that doing some exercise, it just doesn't feel right. So <laughs> Thank you for adding to my Fitbit. Well, I was, <laughs> that's what I was thinking. You know, I'm doing everyone a service. <laughs> I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's some gangman style in there. <laughs> I'm not an expert. <laughs> How's everyone going? Did anyone actually count? <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> Beautiful. So does, do you feel a bit better now that you moved around? <laughs> it does immediately make you feel better, doesn't it? So now you've only got 9,900 steps to go. So doing well. <laughs> I'm assuming you did walk and get out of your bed somehow by using your legs and get here. So now I'll go into my research study that I did, specifically looking at which factors influence the activity levels of people with traumatic brain injury when they're first discharged home from hospital. So as we've talked about, mobility following traumatic brain injury, difficulties are really common, particularly in the severe, the moderate to severe population of traumatic brain injury. And when you think about mobility, there's quite a spectrum of it. So at one end, you might have someone who is really bed bound, needing uh, slide sheets to move, hoist. And then as you move along the spectrum, it might be being able to transfer with assistance to a wheelchair, being able to transfer by themselves, walking indoors, walking outdoors, all the way through to running and being able to participate in competitive sports. So that's a really big spectrum. And if we're thinking about our clients after they've had their injury, they're in inpatient rehab, we're often working more at the lower end of the spectrum, trying to get them to walk again, retraining walking within the hospital environment where it's normally flat, hopefully spacious enough that there aren't too many obstacles to walk around. So that's sort of at that end of the spectrum. If you're looking at community mobility and getting back to sports or anything like that, that's a whole other end of the spectrum. So it's important to consider that when you're looking at people going home from hospital. So this is one of the young guys who was in my study. He was still an inpatient at this point in time. But you can see someone like this, uh, he's come a long way, trust me. But if you imagine him trying to walk outside at this point in time, that's far beyond him. So his goal for discharge, he was going to the transitional living unit, was to be able to walk independently to the toilet. 
and that was a really great goal for him. So for someone like that, when they're first going home, it's going to be a lot more difficult to be quite active during that transition period. And if you think about him getting out into the community, there are lots of factors to think about with community mobility. So this is just a nice diagram. And what it outlines is that all of these different factors may or may not be involved when someone goes out on a community trip and different parts of them might be more important within that one trip. So normally when people are walking outside, it might be specifically for exercise. I'm going for a walk to complete that exercise, but commonly it's for a purpose. So I'm walking to the train station to catch the train. I'm walking to the shops so that I can pick up some groceries and carry them back. So there are lots of considerations. If you're going for a purpose, then there are um, specifics to that task that you can't control. So for example, a minimum walking distance. Well, the distance between my house and the train station, I can't change that. So I have to be able to walk that far. So whatever it is for the individual client. Time constraints depends on how many things you've got to do in the day. What is your walking speed? How, how can you get that far within that speed? If you've got a carer, oh, they're only there for one hour, so we can walk just this far, but then we've got to turn around and go back because that's all the time that we've got. Ambient conditions can be quite important. So that's about weather and uh, temperatures. So um, doing community mob mobility work, because I work in the community, I've noticed that um, obviously rain is quite difficult, but wind can really throw people. Particularly, I've had some very tall clients and they just about blow over on top of me. I'm kind of like, ooh, stay up there. So it really makes a big difference what the weather's like. And if it's about to start raining, you would know yourself that you try and hurry a bit more because you don't want to get rained on. Uh, so that makes a difference to how, thing, how people walk around. Obviously, terrain characteristics, I think uh, as physios, we talk about that a lot with the slopes and the grass. Um, I think sometimes though, if you're not taking the client out into the community, it's easy to forget how uneven the footpaths can be and how big the curbs can be and the slopes going down at the road crossings and how quick some uh, crossing lights are as well. I think sometimes it's more about the traffic um, control than the actual ability of people to be able to get across the road. Uh, external physical load, so that's carrying things. Normally when people are going out into the community for a purpose, they will carry something with them, be it a handbag or a man bag or a um, backpack or whatever it is, so that they can take their possessions or bring home whatever um, they've picked up. So if someone's got a hemiplegia, they still need to be able to carry something as well as balancing and covering all of the other um, terrain characteristics, etc. So it brings in an extra dimension that's tricky. Uh, attentional demands, obviously when you're having to cross roads, if you're talking to someone else, the attention can be harder. Um, making sure people don't get lost out in the community. Even navigating on the footpath, other people coming towards you. Things like small children or dogs, they're a lot less predictable, um, whereas adults will normally move out of the way. So being able to navigate all of those things are important. Postural transitions is the ability to be able to go from standing to sitting. So if you're going, getting on a bus, you're 
transitioning up the stairs, sitting down in the chair, standing up again to get off. So it's really important to be able to do that. And even things like if people are going to a cafe, being able to walk in around the table, sit down, pull the chair in, that can be so difficult for some people, the walking backwards, the walking sideways. So they're all important considerations. And traffic level, that's obviously crossing the roads, but also it can be pedestrian traffic level. So, so many things that can cause problems for people when they're walking out in the community after having a traumatic brain injury. And it can be uh, not just the physical side of things that are problematic, it can be visual, being able to process all of the different stimuli, auditory sensitivity, uh, problem solving, being able to make decisions quickly for crossing the roads. I've been, so many times I've been with a client and it's safe to go and then it takes them that few more seconds to decide, yes, it's safe to go and then by that time another car's come. So it can be really tricky for people. And so this is our young guy um, who's worked really hard with the physio. So he's made awesome gains. This is after he has um, gone to the transitional living centre. So he's walking outside, he's doing great. But as you can see, he's still struggling. And um, his road safety awareness is not great because he stops in the middle of the road to check for cars. So if you imagine him having to walk even 300 metres to Safeway to pick up a bag of groceries, and carry that bag of groceries back home again, that's a really challenging task for someone like this. And for, to think of him being able to do that by himself, you'd be quite concerned um, for him to be able to do that. So being able to get out in the community immediately after you've gone home from hospital, as you can see, can be really challenging for some individuals. And the transition home period this period in itself can be a really challenging time. So it's often exciting for the individuals because they're like, I just want to get out of this jail, let me get home. But it's a time when ongoing support is really, really necessary. And I don't know about you guys, but I've had so many clients and they're like, when I get home, everything's going to be fine. I don't know what you guys are worried about, it's going to be fine. And then when they do get home, that can be when reality hits a little bit more for some people, many people, and life is different and they might not be going back to work or whatever pursuits they were following, study. Um, they might not be able to see their friends as much as they did before or other family and social supports. And during that time, they can often become bored and frustrated. Also during that time, carer stress can really increase for the people around them because as much as you can educate family about the changes and what's going to happen, the reality is very hard to comprehend um, prior to experiencing it. So once the individual with traumatic brain injury comes home, that's when the carers really can understand how things are and the stress can really escalate during that time. So when the individual uh, goes home, the individual with traumatic brain injury goes home from hospital, there's a lot going on around them as well as within them. And this is just a really nice diagram for, from some research done um, by an OT up in Queensland. And it looks at the interplay of personal factors, professional service factors, and family or caregiver factors 
during the transition period. And so as outlined by the diagram, all of those things overlap and interplay. And to get effective management of a client, um, this is gonna work, it's ideally you wanna be in the middle area where there's an even overlay of all of those things. And if we look specifically at personal factors, uh, the level of disability or someone's physical ability can be quite important during the transition time because if they're more physically able, then they're more able to participate in activities. They have a greater sense of well-being because they're able to do things and they can achieve things. They feel more autonomous within their activities. And emotionally and for their confidence, it's better if they are more physically able so that they can participate in activities during that time. So it's a period of time where it's great to get people as active as possible and doing as much as possible because it really helps with their emotional well-being and this difficult transition period. In terms of defining the transition period, it's not um, very well defined within the literature. So some uh, articles look at being the first six weeks, others three months, others six months. So it's very variable what um, they look at. And it's not, not an area that's very well researched at this point in time. So in terms of my own research, what I wanted to look at was, well, how active are people with a traumatic brain injury just before they leave hospital and then also following discharge from hospital, so when they do first go home. And then trying to look at, well, what are the predictors of people being more active? If I know what things are associated with them being more active, then we can target those things while they're still in hospital, when they're in that supported environment, to try and facilitate a better level of activity when they are going home and working through this transition period. So the inclusion criteria for my research was that people needed to be admitted to Epworth Rehab Richmond with a traumatic brain injury. They needed to be an inpatient for at least 14 days. On discharge, they needed to be fully weight bearing both lower limbs at least one week prior to discharge so that it wasn't an orthopedic restriction that was stopping them from being active. They needed to be aged between 16 to 65 years we picked the working age uh, just so that we weren't uh, getting data that was a bit skewed because people who were a bit older were less physically active more because of their age as opposed to their injury. They needed to be able to walk 10 metres independently with or without an aid, a speed of greater than 0.26 metres per second, which is actually really slow. So <laughs> I picked that, um, there's some research that was done in stroke uh, in the 90s and that uh, speed, any, that speed or less was associated with people with stroke who were pretty much housebound. So having that speed or above, people with stroke in that study were able to get out a little bit in the community. So that was sort of why I picked the speed. But yeah, it is really, really slow. <laughs> They needed to have a HIMAT, so the High Level Mobility Assessment Tool, less than 50 for males or less than 44 for females. So that means they, actually, they needed to have problems with the high level mobility because we do have some people who come through and they're just great at um, 
their high level mobility. So I wanted to target people who did have some issues, but were able to walk so that they had the potential to be able to walk outside. So they had a bit more potential to be physically active. They needed to be being discharged either home or to the TLC, the Transitional Living Centre at Epworth, so that they were in a community environment. Obviously, informed consent or next of kin consent for people who were more um, less able to provide consent from a psychological perspective. And they needed to be returning to Epworth Richmond for follow-up for their outpatient physio, and that was just because I needed to be able to get the monitors off them and for ease of testing, etc. So it was a prospective study of uh, 20 consecutive admissions who met the criteria and agreed. So the first aim looking at to determine the activity levels of people with traumatic brain injury immediately prior to and following discharge from hospital. What I had people do was wear an activity monitor for one week, so seven consecutive days. That was the aim, that was what they were supposed to do on three separate occasions. So they did it in their last week at hospital, their first week at home. So it was two weeks in a row and then at six weeks post-discharge. So the idea of the first two weeks in a row was so that we could directly compare the environments between hospital and home because we figured that they probably wouldn't change too much physically within that two week period. So it was really about environmental, um, seeing what was different. And then the six weeks later was, okay, they've settled into their environment a little bit more. How active are they being now? Um, is this gonna give us an indication as to longer term how they've been? And so for that aim, we looked at the activity levels at each of the three stages. For the second aim, looking at trying to identify predictors of physical activity levels. So the week while they were still in hospital, measured a whole lot of outcome measures in the physical, emotional and cognitive domains, and then looked at whether any of those correlated with physical activities six weeks after they'd gone home. So is anything that's happening while they're in hospital, does it predict how active they're going to be? So in terms of what did I measure, being a good physio, I measured lots of physical outcome measures. So pretty much anything I could think of. And Gavin just said, do all of these things as well. Um, so high level mobility using the HiMAT, walking endurance with a six minute walk test, walking speed with the 10 meter walk test, balance using the balance error scoring system, so that's something that's not so commonly used in Australia, but it's used in the States for uh, concussion patients. So it's sort of a, a sideline test. It's really easy and it's sort of in many ways an abbreviated SOT, um, but it's about counting how many errors someone makes when they're doing the standing tests. I also measured time so that I could have a bit of a, a more clinically relevant um, comparison as well. Uh, and I use that more because there was the data to back it up in, for use in the head injury population, whereas unfortunately there isn't that data around um, some of the other balance assessments. So also looked at physical uh, cardiovascular fitness. So that was using one of the submaximal VO2 Monarch bike test setup. And we used a bike so that they could sit and do the activity so that it wasn't their um, walking ability 
that was limiting how uh, much they could push themselves from a so we weren't sort of getting mixed up data. If it was their walking ability that was limiting how much they could push themselves, it wouldn't be a true reflection of their cardiovascular fitness. So that was why we uh, selected that one. Lower limb strength uh, using the upright motor control test, which is literally just sort of standing and doing a single leg squat with support for balance, um, which is just a really simple functional test that can be used in any clinical setting. Pain using visual analog scale, fatigue with a fatigue severity scale. And I also uh, looked at local environmental barriers to outdoor exercise. So it's a local environment walkability scale. So it's sort of they rate what their local area is in terms of um, whether the footpaths, uh, they feel safe on the footpaths, whether they feel it's accessible, are there shops nearby, um, do they, is there crime in their area? Just things like that to see whether their local environment influenced how um, they were, how much they were getting out and about. In the emotional category, it looked at depression and anxiety using the hospital anxiety and depression scale. I put fatigue in here as well because fatigue crosses across both physical and emotional. There are both components to it. Uh, and the other one was motivation to exercise. So I used the behavioural regulation in exercise questionnaire. Um, which hadn't been used in TBI before, but had been used in other populations and had good efficacy. And cognitively, because I wanted to try and keep it simple and uh, quite clini clinician friendly, uh, I used this supervision rating scale to get an idea of the functional impact of cognitive impairment. So the supervision rating scale is literally, does someone, does an individual need someone else in the vicinity uh, to perform tasks. So can they be left at home by themselves from a cognitive perspective? Are they safe to be able to do that? Or do they need someone with them all of the time? And so it sort of breaks it up like they could be left for two hours or they could be left all day but someone needs to be there overnight. So it's just sort of to get an idea of cognitively are they safe within their own environment? In terms of the demographics, we collected um, Glasgow Coma Scale, PTA, length of time post-injury because a couple of the guys were in there for a good nine or ten months in um, hospital. So obviously a longer length of time post-injury. Uh, relevant past medical history, age, orthopaedic lower limb injuries to see if they had more fractures, did that influence how active they were even though they were weight-bearing fully gender, uh, social supports that they had at home, and pre-accident employment type. And just check to see whether any of the demographics correlated with how active they were. In terms of actually recruiting, during the time period that I was recruiting, there were 242 TBI admissions. 45 of them met the inclusion criteria. Quite a large percentage didn't meet the inclusion criteria because they were from the country. So they were going back home. So they probably would have met all of the other criteria, but they weren't coming back to Epworth, which was unfortunate. And then 23 consented, three dropped out, um, mostly due to activity monitor. They got annoyed with it and um, didn't want to continue with the, doing the study. And overall, there were 13 full sets of data, as in all of the activity monitors at each of the 
different stages had worked. So I had lots of problems with the activity monitors, unfortunately. Um, when I started the project about five years ago, <laughs> the best monitors at the time were uh, ones that malfunctioned quite a lot. You needed to charge them every night. People were forgetting to charge them. People would forget to wear them despite text messages and phoning and get, trying to get the family members on board. Um, and the monitors also malfunctioned by the end. They were dying. And so I would have people who religiously wore them for seven days and it would come back and I couldn't get any data off the thing. So as anyone knows who's done research, lots of frustrating issues can be associated with it. So the results were that in terms of activity levels, so the blue, there we go, the blue is pre-discharge, what activity levels they were doing in terms of steps per day, you can see 10,000s there. And then first week post-discharge. So this is consecutive weeks in a person's life hospital, home, and the little star here indicates an, a significant, that was statistically significant drop in activity levels. So it's not their physical ability that's changed, it's everything else. Going home, whatever else is going on for them emotionally, as well as the change in environment. And then six weeks post, activity levels seem to sort of increased a little bit, but there's nothing statistically significant there. So they were actually most active whilst they were still in hospital <coughs> compared to being at home. Lots of theories as to why that could be. One of them, when they're in hospital, they're normally doing uh, two one-hour physio sessions per day. So about two hours each day, and then they're um, encouraged to walk around. And I don't know if you've been to Epworth, but the um, main therapy centre is across the road from the ward. So if they could walk, they're encouraged to walk from the ward over to the therapy centre for all of their therapy. So that's incidental activity that's um, coming in. They've also got a structured timetable. It's listed out, this is what you're doing, this is what you need to do on the day. Whereas when they go home, they might have their outpatient physio sessions, which might be three days a week or something. But on the other days, they don't have that structure, they don't have the timetable. So unless they're motivated within themselves or able to get that structure happening or the people around them are facilitating it, though it can be challenging for people to actually get up and get moving again. So in terms of what the actual values were, um, I put the mean and median because um, they were a little bit different for the, all of the different time points. Uh, and time point one, obviously 8,030 being the mean, and then it drops right down to um, around in the 5,000s. So if you remember the slide I had before, less than 5,000 is sedentary, and then in the, the 5,000s there, that's low active. So at that stage, you're looking at all of those health risks associated with inactivity. So as I mentioned before, significant difference between hospital and home when I first went home. And overall, the majority of participants, participants were well behind, below the Australian National Guidelines of the 10,000 steps per day for maintaining their health. Um, does anyone want to guess what the other factors were that um, were associated with people being more active? 
So the aim two, I was looking at, well, what things can we work on with them in hospital? Does anyone want to guess what they think if they haven't seen my talk before? Yeah, you should know. <laughs> I think you've seen my talk a few times. Does anyone want to guess out of all of those things that I measure, like gait speed, strength, all of the emotional cognitive things? Oh, she's right on. That's exactly what it is. So I was a little bit disappointed there wasn't a more physio-related thing, but it was exactly that. It was the motivation to exercise was highly significantly correlated with how active they were. Which when we got the results, I was like, oh, well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Like, it's logical when you think about it. But when you enter into the research thing and you're thinking, oh, I hope that it's strength or gait speed so that then I know that's what I need to work on while they're here. Um, so motivation to exercise is the key. That's the brick two. And then on the HADS scale, the anxiety section of the HADS scale, but not the depression section, was also correlated. Fatigue severity scale was correlated. And lastly, the best total errors. So the best total errors was the balance one, and it was counting how many times they would put their foot down or something like that. I have a lot of reservations as to the validity of that correlation, the best with the activity levels. The populations that best had been used in before, as I mentioned, were more concussion or mild TBI. And whereas majority of my clients were moderate to severe. And the amount of errors that my clients were making were about 10 times as many as what was in the literature for what had been validated with the best. So I personally am concerned that about the validity of now, retrospectively, the validity of using that scale within my population group. So I'm a little bit hesitant to say, oh yeah, definitely balance is something that's associated within this population group. So it's just a comment that I wanted to make. In terms of the physical test results, the walking endurance of the clients was actually close to normal values for their age, um, a median of 467 metres in six minutes. The aerobic capacity was below average, which you would expect because a lot of the clients have a long period of bed rest with their injury, going through intensive care, etc. So building up that cardiovascular fitness again can be quite a challenge. <coughs> the median high-level mobility assessment score was 24 out of 54. So they're actually doing pretty well, most of these clients. They're you know, at functioning at a bit of a higher level in terms of their physical ability. And as I mentioned, the best, the total errors were significantly correlated with physical activity. But the time that people were able to balance, so if you go back to your SOT, how long can someone do a single leg stance, that was not correlated with physical activity levels. So because that wasn't correlated and the high level mobility assessment tool wasn't correlated, again, I'm a bit suspicious about the link there within my given population. So, uh, we then did a simple linear regression to look at, is there a predictive relationship? So the first one I presented was these things are correlated with each other. So then it was like, do any of these factors predict how physically active people will be? And again, the motivation was very predictive. Anxiety was also predictive. And the total errors was predictive, but fatigue was not. 
And they're moving on to do a predictive model, which um, the statisticians love. I just went, gosh, I don't know what you're talking about, but let's do it. So <laughs> it's something where you can put a whole bunch of factors in together. It's pretty much like an equation um, that you would do in maths methods or something. And so if you put the results of all of these factors into this one equation, does it give you a prediction of then how active someone will be? And what we found when we did this statistical analysis was that if we put in the best total errors, the motivation, the anxiety, and the fatigue severity scale, even though in its own right it wasn't predictive, if we put it into the model, that was the best model. And it was predictive to 77.9%. So the results that from these things, if you throw them together, you're getting a pretty good prediction of how active people will be. So we're pretty happy with that statistically. So overall, um, the key points were that activity levels significantly decreased when people went home. Um, we've sort of talked about how the environment changes and what's going on for the in individual changes. And the activity levels did not return to pre-discharge levels by six weeks. My study was only really short term because it was specifically looking at the transition period. So it'd be interesting to see what happens further down the track, which we are doing at the moment. Um, so that'll be really good to see what happens a couple of years later. Motivation to exercise was strongest predictor, which yes, is logical. And fatigue, anxiety, and potentially balance, can't really say from the results of this, uh, were influenced. So just as a comment, within this population who are physically doing pretty well, how much is it their traumatic brain injury that's affecting their physical activity? Or how much is it them as a person, whether they're motivated to be physically active? Has anyone themselves ever gone, oh yeah, I really should go for a run tonight and then you get home, can't be bothered, didn't do it. Anyone? Yes. <laughs> so it's not inherent to a traumatic brain injury. It is inherent to people, their motivation and their get up and get go. So clinically, uh, important message, people with traumatic brain injury are not active enough to achieve health benefits during this transition period. We need to really prepare them while they're inpatients and do as much as we can when they're first transitioning to optimise that. And it's really important for their health Setting up these behaviours right from the get-go uh, is great so that long-term, hopefully, they can be as active as possible and optimise their health. Um, the influence of motivation on physical activity levels within the traumatic brain injury population, it does need further exploration prior to implementation of targeted therapy. You can't take the results of a study with 20 people and say, right, this is what we need to work on for everyone. And also the links between anxiety, fatigue and balance and physical activity levels need to be further explored with larger populations within TBI. So obviously lots of limitations with the study, particularly the small number of study participants and the limited full data sets. Um, I had hoped to have at least three days, of full days of uh, activity monitoring data for each individual. But when the results came back, we had to change it to two days um, because that was all that we would get. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any data sets or we would have had like five. 
Um, obviously, generalizability to the wider TBI population is problematic. This was such a specific subsection. So these were individuals who did have the ability to move around, to get outside. But if you've got people who don't have that ability, who are more um, just mobile within the home or predominantly wheelchair users, then the physical ability side of things, I would predict, would be much more important for those individuals in terms of how active they are, as well as still the underlying motivation side of things. We also didn't look at any extraneous factors such as return to work or return to study. We thought that within the first six weeks, majority of people wouldn't be back at work or study. I think there was one individual who had returned to work uh, out of the whole cohort. So it's difficult to know how that will then influence how active someone is. Some people might be more active going to work. Other people might be less active if they're sitting at a desk all day. So those factors are also important to acknowledge. And self-efficacy for physical activity was not measured. So that'll come up a bit more through the, um, my talk. And the reason it was not measured was because when I was setting up the study, there wasn't any literature, or very minimal literature about that and not so much published in tra traumatic brain injury. So we'll talk about that as we go on. In terms of future directions, obviously pretty much everyone always says larger studies <laughs> required, <laughs> unless you're doing the AVERT trial, which they're sorted, but otherwise. And that you need to look at associations between emotional factors and physical activity levels in TBI. I think it's really important to explore that further. Also looking at potentially stages of behaviour change over time. So this was a very small, short period in a person's life. So over time, following the traumatic brain injury, how they're feeling about physical activity might change. Their physical activity self-efficacy can change over time and their motivation will change. I think everyone here can um, relate to that, that you'll go through sort of peaks and troughs in your own life and uh, how physically active you are, how motivated you are, and then other things come along and throw you off course. Examination of links between physical activity and uh, community integration, quality of life, return to work or meaningful activities would all be really great to explore to see how the, those things link together if they do or do not. And also examining barriers or enablers of physical activity specific to each individual person. Longer term monitoring of physical activity I think would be really important because it will change over the lifespan. And obviously, once we know a bit more, looking at, well, what are the therapeutic in interventions that can be utilised to try and facilitate physical activity in people with traumatic brain injury? As well as that, the um, activity monitors I used did have a GPS capacity. So we're looking at using that data to just explore a little bit more, well, how much time do people actually spend outside? Is their physical activity spent just in a gym or in a centre? Or are they actually moving around, mobilising outside in the community? Because I think that would be just quite interesting to see what's going on there. So, it's break time. Everyone stand up again. <laughs> and I found another little funny dancing person. So, a <laughs> hundred steps, off we go. <laughs> I don't want you falling asleep, so you need to get everyone moving around.
<laughs> I don't know where these videos, like who makes them. Because it looks like an exhibition or something that he's at. Yeah, exactly. Like, and he's sort of just walking and then he just starts doing this thing. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm sure Anne would love it. <laughs> She'd probably have some good dance moves that she could pull out. <laughs> I'm relying on everyone to count their own steps here. I'm not monitoring. So. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't specifically compared that, but I do know that um, over 50% of Australians are not meeting the guidelines. So I haven't specifically looked at within my group how did that compare, but so they could be exactly the same, exactly. And, and I suspect that that would be the situation. Yeah. So that's something that I'll discuss a bit more right. as we go on. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So you needed to move around because now we're on the lit review, and that's always a bit more dry. So. Obviously, doing research, you have to do a literature review to inform your research, blah, blah, blah. So I did one before I started the project, and there really wasn't very much data or any, many articles published at all looking at the quantification of physical activity levels following traumatic brain injury. So specifically measuring what are the physical activity levels. So I redid the lit review after I'd uh, done my study because obviously I needed an updated one for my thesis. And a couple more, few more articles have been published in the time because I took a long time to get my, <laughs> my research done. So the aims of my literature review, very similar to the aims of my project, but just generally looking at activity levels. So trying to identify what is known about the physical activity levels of people with traumatic, traumatic brain injury, i.e quantification, how active are people with traumatic brain injury, what's been published in the literature where they've measured it. And then the second aim was to identify which factors influence the physical activity levels. So really similar to my study, but what's been published in the literature, what other studies have, what, um, have other studies found? And these studies would be at all sorts of times um, post-injury, uh, whereas mine was specifically transition period. So in terms of the literature review, this is a search strategy. I put in lots of terms around physical activity and exercise, and also around head injury, brain injury, etc. cetera. Uh, so the specific selection criteria was that it needed to be about the TBI population and results needed to be reported specific to TBI population. So it could be mixed, but they needed to differentiate between other populations and TBI with the results. The articles needed to report quantified physical activity levels. So yes, there were some studies that talked about being active, but they didn't actually measure how active people were. Participants needed to be over 16 years old and English language published, because I can't speak any other languages fluently. Um, I'm always jealous when people say, oh, I got English and Chinese, because they can speak that as well. I'm like, how awesome would that be to be able to be fluent? 
Okay, so lots of articles screened, hours spent at the desk, getting um, obese and all of the other things related to physical inactivity. <laughs> and after going through everything, excluding all of the ones, came up with six articles that met the inclusion criteria. So general comments about those articles, all of them were of the TBI population only, plus or minus healthy controls. So there were no mixed uh, populations. It's a fairly recent area of research. Five of the six articles were published between 2010 2014. So um, I did a rerun in March this year. So this is all articles that have been published up until March this year. Most of the studies were quite small with an N of 28 to 80 for five of the six. All of them varied in their aims and methods for data collection. So I couldn't do a meta-analysis across the studies because they were all measuring different ways of, of measuring. Uh, they were measuring different things <laughs> with their, what was influencing. So it was um, challenging to sort of work across the the articles and find patterns. Uh, in terms of physical activity measurement, five of the six articles used self-report as the way of measurement and only one of them used accelerometry. And that's quite disappointing because there is a lot more literature now about the fact that using accelerometry is being more valid, so it's a lot more reliable than self-report, particularly in populations where there are any memory problems um, and it can be that people are forgetting what activity they've done and not writing it down, or conversely, people overestimate and they say that they've done more than they actually have done. So the accelerometers are a lot more reliable. Uh, there was also confusion with the terminology. As I talked about initially, it's really important to differentiate or distinguish, are we talking about just exercise or are we talking about physical activity? And some of the articles would start talking about physical activity and then they'd verge into exercise and sort of use the terms interchangeably. So it's important when you're reading articles to sort of look specifically at that. What are they saying here? And are we talking about exercise or are we talking about physical activity? And in terms of interventions to increase physical activity, there were only two articles and they were both from the same cohort that reported on this. So there's pretty much nada in the literature about what interventions can we use to increase physical activity where they've measured that in the TBI population. So in terms of the finding, the first one, the first aim was looking at well, how active are people? As I said, they measured things very differently, <laughs> but overall, uh, again, the same message that people with traumatic brain injury, their activity levels were lower than what is recommended for health benefit. So some of the outcomes were 46 minutes per week or 5,800 steps per day, which is really similar to my cohort. Um, 26 to 36% were doing greater than 90 minutes per week. So that's pretty much, do that, I'm not very, where's my math? 64 to 75% were not. So the majority were not doing the recommended. It's good that, you know, at least 25% were. <laughs> so we're almost similar to, again, the rest of the Australian population. So what was associated with lower activity levels? Um, 
only the ones with stars were mentioned in more than one article. So as you can sort of see, most of the things don't have stars. So it was really different what had been measured and what was found to be correlated. So in terms of intrinsic factors, female gender was associated with lower physical activity levels, non-white ethnicity, and a lower formal education. In terms of injury severity, the influence was unclear because there were only three of the six articles even mentioned measuring injury severity. Uh, two of them, there was no correlation between injury severity and the physical ability. But then the other one, they found that the more severely injured people were more active. Yeah, <laughs> you go, what? <laughs> but when you go, sorry, I went back and looked in the article and their classification, how they had classified people in injury severity, it was a verbal, how severe was your injury? They didn't look at any medical documentation at all. And if your injury resulted in loss of consciousness greater than one hour, that was a more severe injury. So whereas a less severe injury was less than one hour loss of consciousness. So in terms of us as clinicians and what we think of as a more severe injury, I don't think that that's a, an adequate comparison. Does that make sense? Yeah. In terms of physical ability, one of the articles found that individuals who used a gate aid were less active, whereas another article, and in this article, none of the individuals used gate aids, but they found that mobility limitations and cardiovascular fitness were not related to physical activity levels. So I think it really depends on the population who's been sampled within the article, and I don't think that the, from this review, we can make any broad statements about physical ability and how it associates to activity levels within the literature. Uh, psychologically, decreased exercise self-efficacy was associated with lower physical activity levels. Decreased motivation, yes, I was onto something. Uh, and depression were all associated with lower activity levels across a, at least two articles. Uh, also decreased health status perception. So whether someone personally believes that they are more sick, then that was associated with them being less active and decreased general mental health. In terms of global function, there was a correlation between decreased community or activity participation measured on more global measures, decreased quality of life, decreased ADL independence. So that does make you think physical ability, again, maybe um, been in the mix, and poor health. In terms of environmental barriers, because that's often something that comes up when you're working with clients and looking at how can you be more physical, physically active. So uh, they cited lack of exercise facilities to be a barrier. Um, and this was in a cohort of people who were no longer in active therapy. Uh, no transport to be able to get to or from uh, where they want to go to exercise. A lack of social support for physical activity. I don't have anyone to take me to the gym to go with me. I, I can't go by myself. I need someone else to go with me. So all of those things also come into the mix as well. So what does that mean for us? Well, we still don't know very much at all, really, about how active people are having had a traumatic brain injury. Uh, 
the general consensus across all of the articles is that people are not active enough to achieve health benefits, as we've already talked about. That is a problem across all of society. <laughs> Motivation and exercise self-efficacy appear to be facilitators of exercise. And the influence of exercise self-efficacy and motivation require further exploration prior to implementation of targeted therapy. Because as I said, there was only one cohort that looked at, well, what therapy are we doing? And so we really don't have very good information about what we can do. But we know that physical activity is important. We know. <laughs> That's one thing we can hang our hats on. Does anyone need a break before I go into the next bit? Okay, cool. On the home run now. All right, so that was in traumatic brain injury. What about in the rest of the population? How do things compare? So this is an article, it was published a little while ago, but it was a review of about 300 articles that look, had explored well, what factors in all populations are correlated with people being more physically active. So positive correlates, education, male gender. Now that really sucks for females. We need to do something about this. <laughs> And socioeconomic status. I don't know if you recall, but they were all the same in the traumatic brain injury literature as well. So it's across the board. Enjoyment of physical activity. Well, that's not surprising. If you don't enjoy something, you don't normally do it unless you have to. Uh, expecting benefits from physical activity. So if people feel like, I'm going to get something out of this, this is going to improve my life, it's going to make me feel better, they're more likely to do it. Self-efficacy, self-motivation. Physician influence, so if the doctor has said, you need to go out walking because you're um, pre-diabetic right now, you need to improve what you're doing. They found that that can uh, help. So I think that's positive as therapists because we come under that umbrella, I think, in terms of influential people in an individual's life. And so what we say can facilitate change. And having social support, people around to be able to say, yeah, that's great, let's do this together, or well done for doing 10,000 steps today, that's really great. Negative correlates, increased age, non-white race or ethnicity, perception of barriers to physical activity, and that's not just whether there are barriers, it's the perception, the person's own internal ideas about it. Mood disturbance, so that's really unfortunate because there's quite a lot of literature in the pop, um, general population about the benefits of exercise for depression and anxiety. But if someone has those mood disturbances, they're less likely to be active. So it's something that really needs to be flipped because if those people can be doing more exercise or physical activity, they'll feel a lot better. Um, climate or season, so if you imagine North America or Europe where it's snowy and icy for a number of months per year, going out for a walk might not be so appealing. And let's face it, Melbourne in the middle of winter <laughs> is often cold and rainy and not so appealing to go for a walk either. And perceived physical effort, if someone thinks it's going to be too hard physically, they might be less likely to do it. So in terms of looking at other neurological populations, this is a review that was done in the stroke population published last year. So they were looking at physical activity and sedentary behaviours in people with stroke living in the community. So it was really similar to my literature review. They were looking specifically at what articles had been published, the, where they had 
actually measured how active people were and what were the correlates, what was associated with being more active for, in the stroke population. So there's actually a lot more research in the stroke population than what there is in the traumatic brain injury population. They had 26 studies that met the inclusion criteria looking at 983 participants. And they found that across the studies, the most common method of measuring physical activity levels was steps per day using the accelerometers. So again, that's, they're much further along in their progress of doing the research in physical activity levels in the stroke population. So that's really good. It's great that they're doing it and I'm hoping that it'll transfer across a lot more into the traumatic brain injury research. And they found that the activity levels within the stroke population were less than half of the age matched normative values. So even if someone was say 70 or 80, they were comparing them to someone else of that same age. So it was the stroke that was the difference for these individuals. And in this study, they found that it was walking ability, balance and degree of physical fitness that were positively associated with higher physical activity levels. So a much higher focus on physical ability that came across in this systematic review. So it's really difficult to say, um, do these results, uh, are they something that we should be thinking is also relevant to traumatic brain injury? Or the fact that more people who've had a stroke are older, is the physical ability more of an issue for them? Are our younger traumatic brain injury people getting a bit more active? Or is it just that the studies that have been published at this point in time in the traumatic brain injury literature have been looking specifically more at subsections of the population who are more able. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's just hard to say whether we can take this data and say that's relevant for TBI. Clinically, it makes sense that it is relevant. If someone is not physically able to move around, they're more likely to be less active. It's just logical. What I found interesting is that in this study, um, whether it was a systematic review, the psychological factors didn't come up. So the self-efficacy and the motivation didn't show up. When I was looking at the study, only one of the 26 studies included, from looking at just at the article itself, mentioned self-efficacy. And in the others, it hadn't been measured. So, It'll be interesting to see in, say, another five years whether there are different results if you're doing a systematic review because self-efficacy is becoming a bit more of a hot topic and becoming a bit more understood and now being measured within um, the research a bit more. So moving into talking about exercise self-efficacy a little bit more, there have been articles published showing that exercise self-efficacy has been shown to have a positive influence on physical activity in traumatic brain injury, stroke, multiple sclerosis, and spinal cord injury populations. So there's something here, there's something important about it in the neurological populations. So to delve a little bit more, and I'll straight from the get-go say I'm not a psychologist. So <laughs> there might be people who, um, there are lots of people who have a much better understanding of these things than me. So I'm just giving a brief overview so that people have a bit of an idea. So self-efficacy is the belief or conviction that one can successfully perform a given task.
for example, physical activity. So it's specific. Your self-efficacy for something is specific for a task. So if I, someone said to me, go for a walk down around Yarra Bend for 20 minutes, I'd say, yep, I can do that. My self-efficacy for that, if I wanted to use a visual analogue scale, would be 10 out of 10. I'm really confident that I can go and do that. If someone said, we want you to stand on a tightrope two metres above the ground and juggle, I would say, no way, <laughs> I cannot do that. My self-efficacy for doing that is zero out of 10. So it's not that you can say, oh, this person's self-efficacy is high or low, it's task specific. So within the person, there'll be different things, some things that their self-efficacy is really high for and other things that it's really low for. And if someone has a higher self-efficacy, it gives them a greater feeling of control and makes them feel that they can control the environment a bit more. So if someone stood me at the platform and there's the tightrope and I'm two metres above the ground, I would be freaking out. I would not feel in control at all. I would be very anxious and upset. So if you are with a client and they're not so confident about walking outside, their self-efficacy is not high, and you take them into a busy shopping centre where it's peak hour and there are people everywhere, they're going to freak out a bit because their self-efficacy is not high <coughs> for that particular activity. So low self-efficacy is associated with depression, anxiety, stress, helplessness, low self-esteem, and consequently negative health states, which makes sense because if you're got moving through life and constantly feeling like you aren't sure if you're going to be able to successfully perform a task and you're stressed, that will lead to lower health states because it's chronic disease, long-term stress, all of those sorts of things together. So it's really important um, to be looking at this and checking with our clients how are you feeling about doing this particular task? What can we do to help you with that? And I just love that photo, so I had to put it in. Self-efficacy is so individual. If someone said to me, okay, you're gonna jump out of the plane, I might say, okay, two out of 10 is my self-efficacy for doing that, I'm a bit of a scaredy cat. This person, regardless of the fact that they're in a wheelchair, they've said, I can do that and I'm doing it. So it's about the individual internally. What do they believe that they can do? How can we help them with that? Looking at motivation, because that's come up in, the re in my research, it can be defined as the process that initiates, guides and maintains goal-oriented <coughs> behaviours. So there are three major components. Activation, which is the decision to initiate a behaviour. Let's get started and then persistence, the continued effort towards a goal despite the presence of obstacles, let's keep going. And intensity, the concentration and vigour that goes into pursuing a goal. So how much effort can you keep putting in? How long for? What are those levels of motivation? And I'm sure everyone's experienced this feeling before, where I could, but I just don't have the motivation to do something. And that's normal for people. So it's something that is really important in getting people up and getting people active. But what can we do about it? The other thing that's important is intention. 
So intention is an aim or a plan. Across the general population physical activity behavioural literature, there is a consensus that intention is key. If someone does not intend to be physically active, they won't be physically active. It's not in their plan. It's not something they're thinking even of doing. But as we know, intention does not always lead to action. It's called the intention behaviour gap. So you've got the intention there, but then the follow through is another step. So how many people have said, right, this year, this is the year I'm going to get fit. I'm going to sign up for the gym. I'm even going to pay a whole year's membership to make sure that I go to the gym. Has anyone done it? A, a few nods. No one's brave enough to put up their hands. <laughs> and I would love to know the stats. I'm sure someone's recorded it. How many people make it past January? But I've definitely heard that gyms love it because they make all of this money in January and then their numbers just by mid-year are back to their normal. So people can have great intentions, but it just doesn't always transfer into the action. And that might be because of something going on inside yourself or it might be something external to you. So every day I get to work with the best intentions, the right attitude, and then idiots happen. <laughs> Luckily not in our team. <laughs> but, you know. And the other quote there is, the largest pool of untapped resources in the world today is humans' good intentions that don't translate into actions. If all of my intentions translated into actions I would have run a marathon, be fluent in French, excellent at yoga, completed a PhD and done a million other things as well. And I haven't done any of them. Um, but does everyone get the idea? You've, you know, everyone can have the intention there. But it's that next step of translation into action. So the next um, slide, internal facilitators of physical activity. This are some things that were from an article that was published this year. And it looked at um, behavioural behavioral theory behind physical activity and did a review across um, just general articles that looked at behavioural theory, what had been published, uh, what theories are out there and what were the common themes within the theories. So there were um, 36 different theories that they found, um, different models, and eight of them were commonly used within the literature just of general uh, populations. And so the common threads within these theories as to how is physical activity uh, facilitated internally within the person were firstly volitional regulation behaviours. So these are uh, needed to start the physical, the behaviour that you're intending to do. So it's that step that bridges the gap and gets um, people started and gets them going and moving on. So when you look at the list of volitional regulation behaviours, they include self-monitoring, scheduling, enlisting support, so asking other people to help, organising the other people, prioritising and problem solving. I looked at that list and I went, how many of my clients have got issues with one, two, three, all of these problems? 
majority of them. So in terms of um, the internal factors, these are all areas that I think we can be really mindful of and acknowledge, well, with our clients, do they have issues in this area? Is one of these areas particularly challenging for our client? So what can we do? If they've got the motivation, they've got the intention, they've got the physical ability, but it's these areas where they're struggling to be able to get going and organize a plan, get themselves moving, then I think that there are areas where we can try and look at, well, how can we support and facilitate someone to carry through with the behavior that they're intending to do? The other internal facilitators were effective judgments. So that is enjoyment or pleasure. So obviously, as talked about before, if someone enjoys the activity more, they're more likely to do it. Uh, self-efficacy. So we've talked about self-efficacy already. Within these behavioral models, they split it up a little bit more into different types of self-efficacy along the uh, physical activity behavioral journey. So the initial uh, physical ability self-efficacy, so I feel confident I can do that activity, that was really important in actually starting an activity, bridging that intention behavior gap. Then the next one was maintenance self-efficacy. So that's the belief that someone can keep doing and persisting with an activity despite boundaries, oh, not boundaries, um, barriers arising. So for example, uh, you might have a routine where you go to the gym every day straight after work and then that fits in with the routine and then you have a late meeting one day. So problem solving, uh, do I go for a shorter period of time? Do I go before work? So that barrier that comes up being able to deal with that. And within the behavioral theories, there's a consensus, consensus that maintenance self-efficacy is really important for ongoing maintenance of the behavior. Someone needs to believe that they can keep doing it and then they'll keep doing it longer term. And then the last self-efficacy that they talked about was what's called recovery self-efficacy. So that's the belief that someone can restart an activity when something's happened that's caused them to stop for a period of time. So for example, you get sick. And I've heard people say this so many times, oh, I got really sick. I was going, I was so good. I was going to the gym three days a week. I was doing so, I got sick for a couple of weeks. And I just got out of the routine. And then I just, just didn't start again. Has anyone had that happen to them? It's really easy. So that's called recovery self-efficacy, the belief that I've had something happen, but I can get back to it. I can start up again and keep going after that. So it's, all, it's very complex. I'm just brushing the surface, but there's a lot um, going on with all of these beliefs. As well as self-efficacy, outcome expectations, which we've talked about before. I'm going to get something out of this. I'm going to feel good, more likely to participate in the exercise. In terms of personality traits, what they talked about is that certain traits of conscientiousness and extroversion. Uh, those people who have those traits are more likely to follow through with doing the exercise. And apparently it's because <laughs> They're a bit overdriven, so they're the high achiever people who are always driven to do things. And if they don't do something, 
they have a personal internal dissonance. They feel uncomfortable because they're not achieving this task that they've set for themselves to do. I say they, but I'm probably one of those people. So <laughs> but it's something that if one of your clients has these traits, great. We can utilise that and really work with them on sort of getting them motivated to participate in the activity. External factors, which we've talked about, about around boundaries, having social support, boundaries, barriers, having social support, availability of complex, um, the facilities, but also time, particularly if people are working, if they've got um, social responsibilities such as family, etc. Time can be a really big uh, barrier. Uh, and uh, competing opportunities as well, like you might get in a good routine and then someone says, oh, how about you come and do Spanish lessons with me? Oh, that'd be great. That's the night I normally go to yoga, but which one should I do? So things can come up. You can get a good routine, but other things come up. Habit is really important for ongoing behaviour. So they talk about there's initiation of behaviour, commencing the behaviour, but if you have a behaviour that's ongoing, normally it needs to be a habit. So it's no longer a decision. If something's a habit, you don't even think about it. I've heard people say, I always go for a run when I get home from work. That's the, my routine, that's the trigger. But if I sit on the couch for five minutes, I don't go for my run. I have to go straight away. So that's habit where it's built into your routine. You don't even think, should I go or shouldn't I? It's just what you do. So if you can build that in, you're much more likely to do more activity. And the last one on the list is identity. In terms of your own personal identity, people might talk about, I am a triathlete. I am a swimmer. I am a cyclist. That is who I am. So my behaviour in terms of being physically active aligns with my identity as to who I am personally. It aligns with my values, my own personal values about what I want for myself, what I think is important. They talked about in the article that for some people, if that actually isn't their identity or that it's not within their value system to be physically active, if they're sort of forced into physical activity or someone sort of encourages them, motivates them to do it, they might actually feel a bit funny internally because they're doing something that doesn't quite align with their values. Um, for example, I was brought up strongly not to steal anything. And sometimes, not sometimes, let's just say I accidentally took home a pen from somewhere and it was a really nice pen and I didn't mean to take it home and I get home and I find out I've stolen something. I feel it yucky inside. I don't, do people understand what I mean? Like if you've got certain values and what you do, your behavior doesn't align with those values, you can get an internal um, discordance and people might not even realize that that's what's going on. It just doesn't feel right to them. So their own identity around physical activity is quite important. So what do we do <laughs> as therapists? We know that people aren't active enough. It's not just people with traumatic brain injury. Everyone is not active enough. Over half the Australian population are not active enough. 
So the problem is we don't know the answers to how to get people more active. If there was an article that had been published that said do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and this person will definitely be active, we wouldn't have the problems that we have in Australia at the moment with high rates of inactivity, high rates of chronic disease, all of these issues. So the next number of slides are things that I've pulled from my take on the articles, my experience as a clinician, so they're my opinion. So they're not something that I can say these are definitely backed by research articles. Does that make sense? I just want to make that clear. So the first step would, or the main step is to build a physical activity plan. So with your clients, work out well, what physical activity do they want to do and how can they do it? So as part of that, identifying barriers. How can we overcome barriers? And working out, well, when will the physical activity be done? Put it in a schedule. We often work with our clients around making a timetable or a schedule to help with their prioritisation and all of those sorts of things. Put the physical activity into the schedule with them. So just fleshing out the assessment of barriers a little bit more. Going, this is a little bit of a checklist, but you need to also just get the clients themselves to generate what their personal barriers are. So physical ability, what can they do? What can't they do? If someone's predominantly wheelchair bound, it might even just be seated, put on some music, do a bit of a jiggle around whatever movement you can do is going to be better than nothing. Cognitive ability. So we had those that list of internal facilitators before. Where are there issues for the person? How can we look at overcoming those barriers in terms of it might be the scheduling, might be not being able to enlist support. Motivation, very important to have that discussion with clients. What does motivate them? What are the things that we can use to help motivate them? Physical activity, self-efficacy, we've talked about a lot. How do they actually feel about doing the task? You could do a VAS rating of what do you feel out of 10 about your confidence of being able to perform that task and keep performing it. Have a discussion around pre-morbid and current physical activity identity. So they can be two quite different things. Someone pre-accident may have been an athlete, may have had an identity that was all wrapped up in their cricket club or their footy club, things like that. And that identity may have been taken away by the accident because of impairments associated with their brain injury. And I think everyone in the room kn knows already that that uh, rebuilding identity following traumatic brain injury is a very long and arduous process, taking many years and lots of stages of developing that for individuals. So just discussing with your clients sort of where they're at now, they might not have a physical activity identity because they don't know what they can do, they are grieving the loss of their old physical activity identity and developing a new one for where they're at right now can be quite a challenge for them. So it's a good discussion to have. Looking at environmental barriers, uh, the cost and uh, where they can do exercise or 
uh, literally walking around the block are there barriers to being able to do that. Any social barriers that they might have, whether it's that they actually do need someone to take them to the gym um, to be with them, to monitor what their program is they're doing because cognitively they can't cope with that themselves. Uh, time, as we talked about in terms of what are your demands, time demands during the week. So that really plays into scheduling. What is their work environment? If people have returned to work and they're predominantly at a desk, are there any options at their work to get a sit-stand desk so that they could spend some time on their feet? Are there options to, if you're commuting to work, maybe get off the train or the tram and stop earlier and walk? Just looking at any opportunities to implement physical activity into the day. And cost, as we talked about, um, if someone's specifically looking at going to a gym and maybe they're not working, cost can be a big barrier. So it's trying to work out what can they do. And as I said, it's important to uh, get them to generate their own individual barriers as well because they might not be things that you've come up with yourself. So if it requires pants and or a bra, it's not happening today. Do you think I could use that as a barrier to not going to work? <laughs> Very individual, just people come up with their own things. I just thought it was funny. <laughs> so as well as barriers, looking at promoters, what are the things that motivate people? I said physical ability as a barrier, but it's a promoter as well. What can they do? Identify their strengths, give them confidence in what they can do, what they're able to do. Talked about personal values and identity, aligning with those values, having a discussion. Well, what, what's important for you around physical activity? Is it important? Is it not important at all? Is health important for you? How do you, your actions align with what your values are? Making behaviour um, automatic or habitual, talked about scheduling in, making it enjoyable, enlisting social supports where possible. If there's a friend or a family member to go around, walk around the block with, that's great. I think most people would know from experience if you've had a, an exercise date with a friend and it's just you go for a run together and have a chat you're much more likely to complete the task if you've got someone else who you've got to actually um, do the activity with. Make a physical activity a social obligation. So there's some research that shows that people who are dog owners are more active than people who are not dog owners because they have that responsibility to their dog, that social responsibility. There's also some research that demonstrates that some uh, parents of young children who want their children to be physically active can be more active themselves because they're sort of demonstrating that behaviour and taking their kids out being more active. I wouldn't suggest to our clients you should go and have a young child because that'll help you be more physically active. That would be completely irresponsible. Some clients a dog might be appropriate. It depends on the individual person. So just thinking about what other things can we use to help motivate people and finding values that are outside themselves as well as aligning with the internal values. Sometimes there might be activities where um, people are fundraising. Um, how many laps of the pool, every lap that you do, you raise more money for a certain given cause or things like that. Enlisting those um, programs can sometimes be helpful. So practical tips, incorporate physical activity into daily routine. 
and tack physical activity onto other tasks that people already do. So I think a lot of people might have heard of the old um, go to the toilet, do 10 squats or some lunges because you're going to go to the toilet. Not many people get through the whole day without going to the toilet at least once. So if it's tacked onto an activity that you're going to do, then you just do it automatically. You can do a wall squat while you're brushing your teeth. Just identifying other activities. I'll often um, use meals because people have regular meals. So it might be something that takes one minute and I say, before you eat your meal, do 10 sit to stands or something like that because I know that then they'll do it a few times throughout the day. Or someone who loves, like in hospital, they love their cup of tea that comes around or do your 10 deep breaths before you actually have your cup of tea. So if you can tack it onto something else, it's called splintering, then it's more likely to get done. As therapists, if it's appropriate, go for a walk with your clients if you're having just a discussion session. If you know that your client can walk, do you have to be sitting in their dining room with them if you're not writing pen and paper? Can you just go for a walk and talk about things? Uh, it's a good way to get some activity into your day and their day and it might even facilitate conversations. Set physical activity goals and celebrate achievements. Really helps with motivation if people have got goals and uh, if we're celebrating the achievements then they're getting it done. So it's really great to do that. Monitor with a Fitbit or a similar device and something that's really important to remember is that physical ability changes throughout the lifespan. So a lot of people have their intervention with physio, etc., for a certain time period post their um, injury. And then they might go 10, 15 years or more without seeing another person, a physio or someone to monitor what they're doing or give them some more direction. Personally, I think it would be great for people to have semi-regular like, annual check-ins with a therapist so that they can be reviewed and see what their needs are and sort of refocus them. At this point in time, I know that funding can be a barrier to that, but hopefully in the future, that's something that can change. And obviously make activity fun. So <laughs> fun is very individual. So one cat's saying this exercise is great for your arms, shoulders, chest and back. Do four sets of 15 repetitions, then move on to the yard ball for your aerobics. And the other cat's sort of very startled. <laughs> it's a physio cat. <laughs> so take home messages. Physical activity is a priority, not just for our clients, for ourselves, for everyone. It's so important. Individuals with traumatic brain injury are more likely to need help on all of the levels that we've discussed to be able to increase their physical activity. Look for physical activity promoters and ways to increase incidental activity throughout the day, not just one block of exercise at for 30 minutes, then nothing. Make a physical activity plan, measure physical activity, set goals, celebrate the achievements of them. Stand up, sit less, move more, more often. And if you keep doing that, you might at the age of 87 be able to pull off some moves like this lady, though I can't pull any off now. <laughs> 87. And you might be able to pull off a green velvet suit <laughs> too.
awesome. Isn't she awesome? Just watch. She's Exactly. Now that, oh no, it's the next bit. Does anyone know how hard that is? What she's doing there? I am in complete awe. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Beautiful. What a star. So, thank you.